How often have you heard it said, if you just pray harder, or pray more often, or pray in the right way, or get more people to pray, your friend or your relative would get better? Or if you really had the Holy Spirit and believed strongly enough, you'd be able to speak in tongues too, just like the people in the early church did. Or, if you really had the Holy Spirit, you wouldn't get sick, and if you had enough of the Spirit, you could heal other people too. Or, if you were a true believer and really had the Holy Spirit, you wouldn't be sinning like that. Such are the lies of the modern-day enthusiasts. Though the enthusiast more broadly means those who believe that the Holy Spirit works in them apart from the means of grace, that is, apart from the word and sacraments, these symptoms do still often apply. Enthusiasts seek religious experiences that are emotional and exciting, and they have dramatic outward signs and actions. After all, such actions get noticed by others, and they bring glory and praise. Not first and foremost to God, though, but rather glory and praise to the individual for his or her perceived faithfulness or the, the power of his or her faith. Now, by enthusiasts, I do not mean genuine Christians who have a dynamic and living faith that is apparent to all, one that is lived out humbly and without seeking attention. We should all certainly hope and pray that the Holy Spirit will dwell in us, and that He will lead us willingly and eagerly to exhibit lives of faithful obedience to God and loving service to our neighbors. Rather, I, I use here the terms enthusiast and enthusiasm in specific theological ways, ways in which I hope you'll come to understand as we go further together this morning. You can usually identify enthusiasts because they're a very demanding bunch. They set the bar of their expectations very high indeed. They insist on strict standards of behavior, sometimes upon themselves, but more often upon those that they want to judge, and worse yet, especially expectations for God. Now, the coarsest form of modern-day enthusiasm in the Christian tradition is probably found in Pentecostalism, that religion which takes its name from that event we observe in the church today. Yet Christian enthusiasm is certainly not confined to Pentecostalism. Enthusiasm can exist even among those who consider themselves members of very orthodox church bodies. It can exist to an even greater extent among congregations and pastors who are functionally independent of any sort of denominational hierarchy or who don't subscribe to a broader scriptural confession that clearly defines the attributes and the works of God. And it can especially exist among individuals who might consider themselves Christians, but who separate themselves from sharing their confession and in a fellowship with other believers. Those who isolate themselves from working and serving and suffering together and insist that it's, it's all about them and Jesus one-on-one. 
Enthusiasm was certainly not unknown during Jesus' earthly ministry, nor in the early church, even if the term wasn't explicitly and formally used. It has existed in various forms and at various times throughout history. In fact, whenever and wherever people insist that God, His prophets, or His followers must meet their desires and expectations, rather than conform to God's own revelations, there's a looming danger of enthusiasm. Now, along with that danger comes the very real possibility that true orthodoxy, true proclamation of God's Word, and true confession of the faith will be lost. Can you think of some places in the Bible where enthusiasm got the better of people? I can think of a few. How about when Cain was angered that the Lord didn't find his sacrifice acceptable? How about when Abraham and Sarah decided that God wasn't fulfilling his promise of a child quite fast enough for their liking and decided that they needed to use Hagar as a surrogate? When Moses determined that speaking to the rock as God had commanded wasn't adequate, but rather that striking it and declaring how he was providing them water would be more helpful and more dramatic. How about when Samuel tried to guess which of Jesse's sons would be chosen for anointing as the next king based on his own perceptions? Such enthusiasm, such insistence on conformance to one's own ideas in order to find God or to find God's ways acceptable and adequate was not limited to the Old Testament either. The people of Nazareth wanted Jesus to do miracles in his hometown as they'd heard he'd done elsewhere. The scribes and the Pharisees and the chief priests wanted Jesus to show them miraculous signs too. His proclamation was not enough for them. And even among Jesus' closest followers, it surfaced. Philip, even after having spent several years hearing God's message through Jesus, still wanted to see the Father in order to accept Jesus as the Messiah. And James and John wanted to sit at Jesus' left hand and right hand when he came into his kingdom. And the primary speaker of the Pentecost Day sermon, St. Peter, he had initially rejected how Jesus had told his disciples that he would be glorified and how his kingdom would come, that is, by his death on the cross. Peter had later rejected Jesus' desire to wash his feet at the Passover and then insisted that Jesus wash more than just his feet. Peter thought Jesus ought to do it his way and then to take it one step further, again, doing it Peter's way. In all of these cases, people either demanded dramatic outward exhibitions of God's power and glory or at least a conformance to their own expectations. Enthusiasts in our day insist, just as enthusiasts always have, that God or others demonstrate certain actions or characteristics in order to satisfy themselves that their faith is true and sufficient or that God approves. They insist that if worship and Bible study don't leave them feeling mentally stimulated and emotionally energized in that very hour, then it isn't effective. They insist that if, if such and such a program or such and such a technique isn't being used to reach the lost, then 
that church isn't very mission-oriented. They insist that if a congregation isn't numerically growing at a certain pace or panic of panics is actually shrinking, that it's a sign of unfaithfulness or God's disfavor. In these cases, too, human expectations or demands are being placed upon God or placed upon His church, putting humanity or that individual in Christ's judgment seat rather than leaving it to Him who will judge all things according to His Word. When God sent the Holy Spirit to His church on that Pentecost day, seven weeks after Jesus' resurrection from the grave, He certainly did do it in a dramatic and highly visible, highly perceptible way. A sound like a mighty wind. A sign as if tongues of fire. And the believer's miraculous ability to speak to the gathered throng and declare the wonders of God in many, many human languages that they had never studied before. These were all special things, and they were recorded for us in God's Word. Things we do not fully understand, but things we believe and things we trust because that same Holy Spirit has come to us. It is not for us to determine, nor for us to demand that God choose to work a certain way for us and in us. Faith accepts that He can work in ways that are spectacular, but also in ways that are quite ordinary, even in ways that appear to be weak and nonsensical to us. Yet in no less miraculous than any of His other wonders, and in no less effective a way, God's Word and a common earthly substance water can give you faith and forgive your sins. It is no less miraculous that the spoken declaration of absolution from a frail and fallen sinner can remove the stain and guilt of your sins either. And it is just as amazing, just as unfathomable, that the true presence of the Son of God, the very body that suffered and the very blood that was shed on the cross to atone for your sins, can be brought to you in a rather bland wafer and in a sip of unspectacular wine. The real miracle of Pentecost is not that spectacular signs were given by God, for He has been known from the very beginning to have been capable of doing that and far, far more. Signs of the sounds of wind and tongues of flame and words in many, many languages are not all that spectacular in comparison to speaking creation into existence. Flooding the earth, parting the sea, striking down vast armies, and the many, many other more powerful signs that we see throughout the Bible. No, the real miracle of Pentecost is that in the proclamation of Jesus Christ to a crowd of devout Jews, God brought faith to many of them. From that day forth, His church has spread the same good news near and far, just as many of those in Jerusalem that day took that faith home to their native lands just as that news has come to you and has put faith in the Holy Spirit into your hearts as well. If you look further on in the book of Acts and throughout the epistles of the New Testament, you notice something quite interesting and quite important about the apostles' great joy in God's actions. They and the other believers were certainly thrilled and thankful for the miracles that they had seen and 
that they had been given the power to perform themselves. They rightly gave glory to God for these amazing and extraordinary things. But these believers did not consider the dramatic and the spectacular events to be of primary importance in their life in Christ. In fact, it was usually the unbelievers that focused more upon these great signs. Rather, the Christians' greatest joys were in having been called by God to faith, to serve Him, and to proclaim the gospel. Their rejoicing was in being joined to the death and resurrection of Jesus. Their rejoicing was in being counted worthy to suffer on account of the name of Jesus. Their rejoicing was in seeing others receive the word of God and being granted the gift of faith. Their rejoicing was in seeing hearts move toward generous giving to support the spread of the gospel and to provide care for their Christian brothers and sisters, both in their own local congregations and in places far away. We observe and we remember Pentecost as a day in which God worked in extraordinary ways to convey miraculously His power of the Word to the lost and the fallen of the world. Yet the reality of that day does not give us, nor anyone else, the right or the authority to insist that God always work in dramatic ways, nor even in ways that we would find preferable or more acceptable. Instead, the heart that is ruled by the Holy Spirit humbly trusts that God will ordinarily work to further His kingdom in the ways and through the work that He has given us. Baptizing, teaching, and observing all that He has commanded, including joining together in worship, repenting and giving and receiving the forgiveness of sins, partaking in the supper that He has instituted, and providing for the care of our brothers and sisters in the faith. The heart ruled by faith, the heart occupied by the Holy Spirit, will not burn within us due to the guilt of doubt like those of the disciples on the Emmaus Road. Instead, out of our Spirit-filled hearts will burst and flow forth the soothing and refreshing rivers of living and life-giving water of the Spirit, the Spirit which Jesus spoke of in today's Gospel lesson. That life-giving water is the Word, Jesus, the living Gospel, He who restores all things, making us and all of creation new once more by our drowning and by our arising. By all means, be enthusiastic and be joyful that the Lord has done marvelous things for you, to you, and through you. But don't be an enthusiast. Don't insist that God do things to your way, to your liking, and according to your timetable. It's not a sign of certain faith when you demand of God certain signs for faith. That's merely blasphemy. Rather, come to accept that the genuine signs of faith are not in the outwardly extraordinary, spectacular events, whether they be once in a lifetime or ongoing. The signs of genuine faith are in having the Holy Spirit be your constant companion, guiding you in the day-to-day -day rhythm of the Christian life, leading you to trust God not just for your eternal salvation, but also for your daily bread. 
leading you not to great deeds and dramatic speeches, but to faithful and humble worship, to soft words of comfort and hope, to generous sharing of God's blessings, and to simple acts of service. The Lord will certainly show amazing signs and wonders of His own choosing in the heavens and upon the earth as the last days approach. And He will do so in His own good time. Until then, pray not that the Holy Spirit would give you spectacular powers. Pray that He will guard and keep you in the faith. Pray that the Spirit might give you complete trust in the extraordinary effects of the seemingly ordinary gifts that God provides you through His church. Through such things, God prepares you for the great and magnificent day of the Lord which will come, which will come when Jesus arrives again, that you may call upon His name and be saved. In His holy name, amen.